Turn in your Bibles with me this morning to 2 Samuel chapter number 15. 2 Samuel chapter 15. Man, what a blessing it is to be in the house of the Lord today. And um, we, I apologize, Jim, wasn't wearing a tie today. The, uh, the, a preacher stole it from him is what happened. So if the preacher would remember to bring his own tie, he wouldn't have to steal his tie from other people. Somebody say amen to that. But uh, i got to say, Jim, you got excellent taste. And uh, so I'm thankful for that. Second Samuel chapter number 15. I'd like to begin reading in verse number 30. We'll catch you up here in just a moment. We've been, uh, if, you, if you've not been in some of these services, we've been preaching a little bit about, I'm, I quit calling them series because then people expect you to finish all of them. But we've been preaching along a similar vein of thinking. Uh, in the Word of God. And so uh, we'll catch you up on that here in a moment. Let me say thank you to our visitors for being here. What a blessing to have you here today. Uh, we want you to know you're not taken for granted. We know uh, there's a lot of other places you could be, and we're thankful that you're here today. Hope you feel at home in the Lord's house. Second Samuel chapter 15. Let's begin reading in verse number 30. The Bible says, And David went up by the ascent of Mount Olivet, and wept as he went up, and had his head covered, and he went barefoot. And all the people that was with him covered every man his head, and they went up weeping as they went up. And one told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray thee, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And it came to pass that when David was come to the top of the mount where he worshipped God, behold, Hushai the archite came to meet him with his coat rent and earth upon his head unto whom David said, If thou passest on with me, then thou shalt be a burden unto me. But if thou return to the city, and say unto Absalom, I will be thy servant, O king, as I have been thy father's servant hitherto, so will I now also be thy servant, then mayest thou for me defeat the counsel of Ahithophel. And hast thou not there with thee Zadok and Abiathar, the priests? Therefore it shall be that what things soever thou shalt hear of the king's house, Thou shalt tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Behold, they have there with them their two sons, Ahimeaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them ye shall send unto me everything that ye can hear. Notice with me verse 37. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city, and Absalom came into Jerusalem. Let's pray together. Father, we love you this morning. Thank you for letting us be here, Lord. There's so many places that were not for your faithfulness and your providence and your watch care over us. So many places we could have been today. But you've seen fit to bring us into your house, into a pleasant place, into a precious place, into a powerful place where we can hear from you, where heaven can literally reach down and touch our souls and deal with us uh, in eternal matters. I pray, Father, that you would speak to hearts today. And I pray that your perfect will would be accomplished in us. Lord, we love you and we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. We have preached several sermons out of this same portion of Scripture, not the exact verses that we've read, but out of this same chapter and the subsequent chapters, uh, two or three that follow uh, this chapter. And it tells the story of David's exile from the kingdom of Israel. Uh, Absalom, the son of David, due to some family tragedies and some uh, family travesties that had taken place, uh, harbors anger and bitterness in his heart towards his father David. And so he conspires a means to win the hearts of the children of Israel away from David, to wrestle the throne away from David, and then he drives his father into exile, into hiding. And you may say, well, preacher, that's, that's interesting, that's fascinating, 
But what could that have to do with me sitting here in East Tennessee on a Sunday morning? What could that have to do with me as a New Testament Christian? When we read the story of David's exile, I think if we look a little closer, while maybe not everything can be compared to today, there are some things that remind me of the day that we're living in. There are three conditions that sort of set the stage for this story. If we distilled them down and really summarized it, I would say, number one, this was a time in Israel's history when the rightful king had been rejected. Verse 17 of this chapter says, The king went forth and all the people after him and tarried in a place that was far off. In other words, David is God's king. He is the rightful king. He is the legitimate king, but he has been rejected by the people of the kingdom. He has been driven off into exile, and he is now dwelling in a far place. Can I remind you that there was once a greater king than David? He wasn't just a king. He was the king of kings. He was the Lord of lords. And he came unto his own. He came and robed himself in flesh, walked amongst mankind. But instead of man receiving him, he entered into the world. He was the light of the world, but the darkness comprehended him not. He came under his own. His own received him not. He was rejected by this world and that rejection culminated on the cross of Calvary when he was made a sacrifice for mankind's sin. And to this very day that we're living in, though he is still the rightful king, he is also the rejected king. This world holds no value for the name of the Lord Jesus. It is slandered. It is cursed. It is used as an oath, as a byword every single day that mankind walks this earth. There's coming a day, friend, when it will not be used that way. Uh, There's coming a day when the only time it will be uttered will be in fealty, in loyalty, in love, admiration, reverence, and respect. But in this day that we're living in, that king, that rightful king, he's still rejected. But then I would say there's a second way this reminds me of the day we're living in. Not only was it a time when the rightful king was rejected, there was a time when a rebel king was ruling. The Bible says back in verse 13 of this chapter that there came a messenger to David saying the hearts of the men of Israel are after Absalom. In other words, Absalom sort of reminds us of a pretending king, of a rebel king, of a false king. He has no authority over that throne, but he's sitting on the throne nonetheless. He does not have the rightful jurisdiction over the kingdom, but he is exerting his force and his influence and his will nonetheless. And that reminds me of the day we're living in, because likewise, there is a rebel king who is ruling over this world. You know, the Bible tells us that uh, Satan is the god of this world. Uh, Now, he's not the God of the universe. Somebody say amen to that. But he is the God of this world. In other words, he is holding sway over this world. We could say it this way. uh, He is holding court in this world. His authority, though illegitimate, is, is lauded and appreciated and applauded by this world. I'll tell you this, we're living in times the devil don't even have to try that hard. The natural proclivity and tendency of mankind is to bow their knee before him, to embrace all manner of wickedness. People look around and atheists will look at this world. They'll say, well, if there's a God, why is there so much suffering? Why is there so much heartache? Why is there so much evil? Well, I'd just answer this, my friend. Don't blame that on God. Mankind has spurned God's authority, has spurned God's word, has spurned God's wisdom, and the destruction and devastation station you see in this world is not because of God. Uh, Listen, when God created this world and was done with it, it was a perfect garden of bliss and of pleasure. But now today it is a place that is sin stained and sin cursed. God didn't do that. Man did that. And I would say this, the problems we see in this world can't be laid at God's feet, uh, but they certainly can be laid at that rebel king's feet. The devil is wreaking havoc 
in this world. But there's a third way this reminds me of the day we're living in. It's a time when the rightful king is rejected. It's a time when a rebel king is ruling. But I like this. Uh, let's just skip ahead in the story a little bit. Listen to what chapter 19, verse 15 says. It says, so the king, talking about David, so the king returned and came to Jordan. It was a time when the rejected king was returning. In other words, this rebel king wouldn't rule forever. <laughs> There'd come a time that the rightful king would come back and take his throne and his authority. And you know, that's the very image that God gives us in Revelation chapter 19 of a conquering king returning to take back the scepter and the authority of this world. Now let me make a distinction here. You and I as New Testament believers, uh, we're going to meet the Lord Jesus before that day because we're going to meet Him in what uh, is called the rapture of the church. Uh, the gathering together of the church unto Him. And so for the lost world, uh, for them as, as they are concerned, the next thing they're going to see is a conquering king coming back. But for you and I as believers, the next thing we're going to see is the uh, chief shepherd, uh, the chief bishop of our soul, the great shepherd returning for his sheep. We're going to see the Lord Jesus come with a shout, with a trumpet coming in the cloud to call home His church unto Himself. And you say, preacher, that, that's interesting, but what does it have to do with me? Well, when you read through here, you find that there are a lot of people that uh, they were fine with a rebel king ruling. We're living in a day where there's a lot of people that are fine with a rebel king ruling. They don't mind that. It doesn't bother them. They're not saved. They don't know the Lord. And, and all they know is that darkness. It doesn't bother them. But there were still some people in the kingdom in David's day that loved the king. The Bible says in verse 15 of this chapter that the king's servants, talking about David's servants, said unto the king, Behold, thy servants are ready to do whatsoever my lord the king shall appoint. In other words, though the king was in exile, still he had some servants. Listen, I know sometimes it looks bleak out there. I get it. I, I, I mean, listen, I, 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 I've got the same exposure you do to the wickedness that is in the world. The TV and the computer pop it into us every single day, and I see the wickedness. And if we're not careful, we'll get so discouraged. We'll be like Elijah. We'll just hide ourselves away in a cave, pull a mantle over our face, and say, I, even I only am left. But can I give you a little encouragement here this morning? That'd be all right. Can I encourage you a little this morning? You ain't the only one that wants to serve the Lord. I understand this world's wicked, but it's not I, even I only am left. It wasn't in Elijah's day. God said, I've got 7,000 ain't bowed the knee, Elijah. Don't think I'd be so foolish as to put every all my eggs in your basket. Somebody say amen to that. I ain't the only one God's counting on. There's other people. There are people still serving the Lord. There are people that though the king's in exile, that hadn't changed their mind about it. In fact, I see in this passage, uh, in verse number 15, as far as they were concerned, their station was unchanged. They called themselves the king's servants. They said there may be a rebel king that is ruling. And isn't it interesting the way they say it? They didn't. It doesn't say, and King David's servants said unto King David. It said the king's servants said unto the king. Why is that? Because to them there was only one king. There was only one king. You remember in, in, in ancient days in Israel, they said this, we have no king but Caesar. Uh, oh, that was a, a statement of defiance and of rebellion. But listen, you and I ought to have a similar statement, but we ought to flip it around. It ought to be a statement of uh, dedication and a statement of loyalty. We ought to say we have no king but the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our ultimate authority as far as they were concerned. Their station, they were still, it didn't matter if the king was in exile. They said, we'll serve him wherever he's at and wherever we're at. I see their steadfastness was unwavering. They said, behold, thy servants are ready. So it doesn't matter that the king is not holding court in Jerusalem. We're ready to do whatever needs to be done. Listen, you better get used to serving Jesus in less than ideal circumstances. Because, number one, there never has been ideal circumstances. 
But number two, they're sure enough ain't getting ready to be ideal circumstances. If you're waiting for everything to line up, you're waiting for the stars to just hit the right angle, and you're just waiting for all of society to sit and applaud and appreciate you serving the Lord, you might as well get over that, friend. You're going to have to serve Him when it's not easy. You're going to have to serve Him when no one cares. You're going to have to serve Him when it's not well received. You're going to have to be ready. They were ready. I see their steadfastness was unwavering, but then I see their service was unconditional. They said this to do whatsoever my Lord the King shall appoint. doesn't matter what He asks. We'll do anything that He asks of us. Are we really a servant if we have limitations on what we'll do? Does a servant ever have the right to look at the Master and say, I'm sorry, I'm off the clock. I'm sorry, that's too much to ask. I'd say this, a servant's not really a servant unless he's willing to do whatsoever the King shall appoint. So in other words, when we read this, we find this. Different people responded in different ways to the king's absence. There were some people took advantage of it, some people that applauded it, some people that were glad of it, but then there were others that were grieved by it. There were others that said, this don't change anything for me, I'm still a servant, I'm still going to live for him. And when we go through these chapters, we find almost a catalog of individuals that responded in different ways to the king's absence and to the king's soon return. And so in the days that we're living in, I would say this, we have a choice as to how we're going to live in light of the king's absence and of his soon return. If we've given a title to this little series, we've called it this, The King is Coming Back. And what does that mean for you and for I? We've already looked at three other individuals, but this morning I want us to notice the man that's featured in our text. He is a man by the name of Hushai the Archite, meaning he was of the people of the Archites. But his name, his proper name, was Hushai. His story is really contained in three different chunks. And we'll look at each of them this morning. But what could we say about Hushai right out of the gate? I think we could say two things. One, he is David's companion. Did you know that four times in the Bible, Hushai is called David's friend? Can I tell you, I want to be a friend of the king. I want to be a friend of the king. I mean, listen, I want to be somebody that as far as the Lord Jesus is concerned, I have an intimate relationship with him. I'm on speaking terms with him. My heart is knit to his heart. Listen, the Bible says of Abraham of old that he was the friend of God. And I want to be like that. I want to be the friend of the king. It's interesting because these four times that he's called it, twice he's called that by the Holy Spirit in the testimony of Scripture. In other words, it says in 2 Samuel 15.37, we read it, so Hushai, David's friend, came into the city. In chapter 16 uh, and verse 16, it says, and it came to pass when Hushai the archite, David's friend. Now, this is not someone in, in the narrative of Scripture speaking. This is Scripture speaking. It's the Word of God saying that he was the friend of David. But then there's two other times that he's called the friend, and it's by Absalom. It says in verse number 17, of chapter 16, Absalom said to Hushai, Is this thy friend, thy kindness to thy friend? Why winnest thou not with thy friend? You say, Preacher, what does that mean? What does that teach me? Well, it teaches me this. Four times he's called David's friend. Twice uh, in the eyes of the Almighty and twice in the eyes of the enemy. Let me say, I want to be such a friend to God that there's no doubt about it in the mind of God and there's no doubt about it in the mind of the world. I, I, I want to be so close to the Lord in my relationship that God has no reason to doubt my love of Him, no reason to doubt my affection to Him, no reason to doubt my loyalty to Him. And I want to be such a friend to God that when the world looks at me, they say there's something different about Him. He is a follower of God. He is a believer in God. He is a person that lives for the Lord. So He's David's companion. But then 
we notice a second thing. And it really is the substance of his story. When Hushai comes out to meet David, David says to him, if you come with me now, you'll be a burden. But here, Hushai, is what I want you to do. I want you to go back into the city. And I want you to be my counselor on my behalf. Ahithophel, uh, who was, by the way, the grandfather of Bathsheba, and there's a whole other story to be told about Ahithophel and his bitterness and anger towards David. But Ahithophel had been a counselor of David. He was a man of great wisdom, humanly speaking. He was a man of great influence. He was a man of great strategy and great keenness of mind. And he has taken the part of Absalom. Hushai, likewise, was a counselor to King David, but he has stayed loyal to David. And here's what the king says. says, I could bring you with me, but that wouldn't help me. Instead, I want you to go back, and I want you to go to the court, and I want you to be a voice for the king in a hostile court. We've given a title to each of these messages that we have preached. And I would say this, that the, the story of Hushai's Life here could be described this way. He is a man who was conquering through counsel. He wielded great power through the words that he spoke on behalf of the king in the ears of those that were hostile to the king. Do you get what I'm saying this morning? I'm saying this. You and I likewise are ambassadors for Jesus Christ. We've not been called back to the homeland yet. There'll come a day, thank God we will. But right now we're in a foreign land. Right now we're in a place that is hostile to the king. But we have a responsibility to be a voice for God and His Word and His Gospel in a hostile land. Hushai's name means hasty. I think that's interesting. He's called Hushai the Archite. And the name Archite means lengthy or long term, we could say this, and you take it for whatever you want, but I think there's a truth here. He is a man who is urgent in his disposition because he has a view to the long term. You know, that's what the truth is about us as believers that are sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. We ought to be urgent in our disposition, recognizing that every day people are perishing without the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we don't do this for some short-term benefit. I'll go ahead and tell you, listen, if you're looking for a good career path, gospel preacher is not the most lucrative. If you're looking for a way to win friends and influence people as far as the earth's worldly concept, then being a soul winner is not the way to do it. But why do people do that? Why do they share the gospel? Because they have a view to the long term. They know everybody's going to spend eternity somewhere. Every single person is going to spend eternity. There's never been a person you've ever seen that does not have an eternal soul that will spend eternity somewhere. Hushai is a man who is conquering through his counsel. We see three portions to his story. I want you to notice them with me this morning, then we'll be done. The first we have already read. It is our text this morning. And we can summarize it with this statement, that Hushai was commissioned. He goes to the king, says he has certain desires, certain wants. He wants to go with the king. He wants to stay with him, be where he's at. But David instead turns him back and sends him on a mission. He says, I have a job for you to do. I have a work to be done. And Hushai, until that work is done, you cannot come with me. You have to go back and finish this job that I have for you. Now, why was this so important? Well, notice these passages with me. Go back to verse 31. Do you remember what prompted all this? And it's wonderful how you can see the providence of God. David prays for something, and God immediately grants the answer to that prayer. It says in verse 31 that one told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. Ahithophel is a powerful man, an influential man. He is a master communicator. And David said, O Lord, I pray thee, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. 
within two verses. Hushai is standing there, the answer to David's prayer. Can I say this? Before David ever prayed that, Hushai was already headed his way. You know, there's times we go to pray for things. Before we've ever prayed, God's already got that answer on the way. Hushai was already on the way out to meet him. But what do we learn here in verse 31? Well, I'd say this. Number one, I would say there is a formidable enemy that has to be contested against. Why was it so important that Hushai go back? Because Ahithophel was no clown. He was a man of great influence. We could use this term. Ahithophel is a man with a bitter vendetta who is a master propagandist. His words carry great weight. He could hold sway over the whole court. He could influence the most powerful of men. And he was exercising all of his ability to try to defeat David and keep him from being the king over Israel. As we said, there's probably some backstory here. There's probably some bitterness over his granddaughter Bathsheba. He later on, Ahithophel, when his counselors defeated, would go out and in bitterness he would hang himself, take his own life because his plot against David had failed. But there's a good argument to be made that Ahithophel was probably instrumental in the planning of this conspiracy. He was vital to its execution and he was a man that had great way with words. Can I say we're living in a time today where likewise there is a master propagandist with a bitter vendetta against the rightful king. He's doing everything he can to turn the ears of the subjects of the kingdom away from their rightful king. In other words, let me just put it real plain here. The devil's doing everything he can to try to send people to hell. He's doing everything he can to fool people, to deceive people, to blind people. In fact, that's what the Bible says, uh, that uh, people that are lost, they're lost because the God of this world has blinded their eyes from the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. The devil has always used deception, manipulation, coercion, and words to control people. When he first approached Eve in the Garden of Eden, he came with subtle words and spoke to her to deceive her into committing sin. He has always sought to destroy mankind because man's made in the image of God. And the greatest way he can do it is by making man and God enemies one of another by causing men to reject God and to reject his gospel. In fact, let me just say it this way. The propaganda arm of this world is a strong arm. The devil is assaulting all of men's senses and all of men's perception. Uh, And if we were to not be willing to take a stand and to be a voice for God, there wouldn't be a voice for God. Hey, the voice for God in this day of grace that we live in is the New Testament church. Uh, It is the local body of believers. It is saved, born again, blood-washed children of God that are willing to share the glorious truth of what God has done in their life and what He can do in the lives of others. And if you and I won't speak up, there's nothing but the vile poison that the devil pours into the ears of people in this world. He was an effective, effective propagandist. In chapter 16, verse 23, it says this, that the council of Ahithophel, which he counseled in those days, was as if a man had inquired at the oracle of God. So was all the council of Ahithophel, both with David and with Absalom. Now, what that means is he was effective. The things that he said were effective. They changed people's perception and people's attitude about things. And I just say the devil in this world system is consistently trying to brainwash people into believing that there is no God, that there is no Christ, that there is no salvation, that there is no hope. And if he can't talk them out of that, he tries to talk them into a false gospel that they've got to be baptized to get to heaven or be a member of a church or do good works or do charity or whatever it might mean. He will use all the means at his disposal. He is a formidable enemy. Because of that, The king needs somebody that will speak up for him. 
The king needs somebody that will counter the counsel of the propagandists. There was a formidable enemy. Number two, there was a fruitful ministry. Uh, verse 32 says something interesting. It came to pass when David was come to the top of the mount where he worshipped God, behold, Hushai the archite came to meet him with his coat rent and earth upon his head, unto whom David said, If thou passest on with me, then thou shalt be a burden to me. But if thou return to the city and say unto Absalom, I will be thy servant, O king, as I have been thy father's servant hitherto, so will I now also be thy servant, then mayest thou for me defeat the counsel of Ahithophel. In other words, though Ahithophel, though Hushai, excuse me, wanted to go with David, David says, you cannot, I have a job for you to do, I have a ministry for you to carry out on my behalf. What does this teach us? Well, I see two things here. One, he is given this fruitful ministry with a great truth. I'll be honest with you, if I had been Hushai, maybe it's just me, I'm silly sometimes, I would have hurt my feelings what David said. I mean, he looks at him, and, and, and it's likely that the context here is Hushai was probably an older man. And what he's saying is, is, is Hushai, you can't bear the, the roughness of the road. And if you came with me, we just, we'd have to carry you. We'd have to tend to you. We cannot carry the burden of having you with us. So instead, I want you to go back. Now, we can look. We can, we can be critical of David. But I think it would be better to distill that down into a simple truth. What is David saying to him? He's saying, Hushai... You're of more use to me there than you are here. He was more useful in the council than he was with the king. In fact, I would say that in a sense this could be a flattering statement. For he's saying, Hushai, there's still purpose to your life. And I'm sending you back in this great purpose and plan because there's a work for you to do and I'm not done with you yet. You know, if God just had His pure unmitigated desire uh, he would desire for all of us to be in heaven with Him. It's the reason the psalmist said, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. It's not that God desires or enjoys people dying or suffering, but He knows that when we die, we are relieved from the suffering of this world. And we go and are immediately in His presence. All of God's actions towards mankind have been premised on the idea that God wants to be with man and wants man to be with God. So, of course, if God had His just unmitigated desire, just what His pleasure was, every Christian would be at home in heaven. So why doesn't He take us on home to heaven? He doesn't for this reason. There's a work left for us to do. Uh, there's a job for us to do. What a glorious day it'll be when we go to heaven. But listen, when we go to heaven, we're entering into our rest. Right now we're in our labors. Right now we're doing what God has, has asked of us to do. And there is a great work to be done. He was given this ministry with a great truth, and then he was given it with a great task. He says, go into the city and uh, say to Absalom, I will be thy servant, as I have been thy father's servant hitherto, so will I now also be thy servant. Then mayest thou for me defeat the counsel of Ahithophel. What a great task this was. He says, and I would say arguably that Hushai does more to get David back into the throne room than any other man in this entire story. He does more to bring the king home than anyone else does. What he's given is not a small job. What he's given is the most preeminent, most important job of all. Can I say that oftentimes witnessing to people is viewed as something, because we say, well, anybody can do it. 
And that's true. If you've been saved by the grace of God, you can witness to people. You can share the gospel. You can tell other people what Christ has done for you and that He will do for them what He's done for you. That He died on the cross of Calvary. That He was buried according to the Scripture and rose again the third day according to the Scripture. And that He is alive and that He's done the work of redemption. And if you'll quit trying and put your faith in Him, He'll save you by His promise and by His grace. We'll say anybody can do that. But I think sometimes in stressing the fact that anybody can do it, we sometimes give the impression that it is just a menial job. Can I tell you the great glorious labor that God permits all of us to be a part of? You remember when Paul talked about us being fellow laborers with God? He was talking about that in the context of sharing the gospel. He was talking about him planting and another watering and God giving the increase. And he said we are fellow laborers with God. You say, preacher, what's God doing today? He's trying to reach sinners with the gospel. And when we choose to share the gospel, we are engaging in the high and holy work that God Himself is doing in this world. I'm saying this, it's not a small task. It's not, it's not busy work. I, when I was in school, they used to have what they called seat work. And I never knew what that meant, seat work. Uh, but as I got older, I realized what seat work meant was work that keeps you in your seat. Because that was the only purpose in it. Wasn't teaching you nothing. It just kept you sitting down. We, we get seat work that we were given. Hey, uh, soul winning ain't seat work. It's the most important work. I see that he is given a fruitful ministry, and then I see that there was a faithful company. Verse number thirty-five. David says, "Hast thou not there with thee Zadok and Abiathar the priests? Therefore it shall be that whatsoever thing thou shalt hear of the king's house, thou shalt tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Behold, they have there with them their two sons, Ahimeaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them ye shall send unto me everything that ye can hear. David says this, you got some good people there that will help you. There's folks there. I know, Hushai, it feels like you're the only one that loves me and cares about me, but that's not true. There's others that are doing the work. There's others that are carrying the load. And you ought to get up along beside them and labor with them. Let me say that in the days that we're living in, it's easy to get discouraged. But there's still folks that love the Lord. There's still folks serving God. And part of the importance of being a, a part of a local body of believers is finding a group of people that love the Lord and are serving Him so that you can help them and they can help you. <laughs> Excuse me, we can. Inv- I wasn't getting ready to speak in tongues. I mean, I just... <clears throat> some allergies. <laughs> some of y'all got nervous when I did that. Part of the importance of that is so that we can labor together in the work of God. I see that he was commissioned. Now, if you were to look at the next chapter, chapter 16, you'd find another scene in the story of Hushai. It says down in verse number 15, Absalom and all the people, the uh, men of Israel, came to Jerusalem and Ahithophel with him. And it came to pass when Hushai the archite, David's friend, was come unto Absalom, that Hushai said unto Absalom, God save the king, God save the king. And Absalom said to Hushai, Is this thy kindness to thy friend? Why winnest thou not with thy friend? So things are getting tense. Absalom looks at him and says, I thought you was a friend of David. What are you doing here? Absalom said unto, or Hushai said unto Absalom, verse 18, Nay, but whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel choose, his will I be, and with him will I abide. And again, whom should I serve? Should I not serve in the presence of his son as I have served in thy father's presence? So will I be in thy presence. So if in chapter 15 we see Hushai is commissioned to do a great work by the king, I would say this, in chapter 16 we see that he is convincing in his role in the king's court. In other words, he is now has to be installed in this place. 
He has to integrate himself into this group of people and be there and present to win their trust, to win their uh, their loyalty so that he can share the truth that the king wants him to. Now, let me be very, very clear. I'm not suggesting any duplicity on the part of believers. We've got to be genuine. Lost people know whether we're being genuine or not. But by the same token, we have an obligation, we have a responsibility to integrate ourselves into their life to share the truth of the gospel. How do we go about that? I see three things here that give me some ideas. Number one, I see the skepticism of the lost. Absalom looks at Hushai and says, what are you doing here? He says, I know who you are. You were the friend of my father. Why are you here now at this time? Can I just say, it is natural, it should be anticipated that lost people will look at us with an eye of skepticism. We've got to win people's trust. We've got to show genuine love to them. We've got to invest in their life because they know the score, friend. They understand. They may be willing to politely ignore it at times to maintain civil society, but they know there is a fundamental difference between what you as a Bible believer believe in and love and value and what they as a lost person love and value and believe in. And so they naturally are going to look at you with some skepticism. It shouldn't surprise you when you have to win their heart and win their trust. That is only natural to do so. What did Hushai say to this? He says something interesting in verse 18. He says, Nay, but whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel choose, his will I be and with him will I abide. Now Hushai could have said, well, the jig is up. They know, they don't trust me, I'm just going to turn around and leave. But in his answer to Absalom, he gives an interesting hint as to what keeps him there. And that is the sovereignty of the Lord. I'm talking about your perspective, your mind frame. As you go out into a hostile world, as you show love to your co-workers, to your companions, to your friends, to your neighbors, you say, preacher, sometimes it's discouraging. Sometimes they're hostile to me. Sometimes they don't trust me. Sometimes they have great skepticism towards me. You have to be reminded that they have put them, God has put them in your path for a reason. God has put you in their path for a reason. You are not there by accident. No more than Hushai was there by accident. He was there due to the sovereignty of the Lord. He says, the Lord's chosen to put you on this throne, Absalom. And He has put me in this place. And therefore, being in this place, it is my duty in serving my Lord to serve whoever is the king sitting on that throne. And that brings me to that third thought. Look what he says in verse number 19. Again, whom should I serve? Should I not serve in the presence of His Son as I have served in my Father's presence? So will I be in thy presence. Did you notice the repeated use of the word serve there? In other words, if we're going to endear ourselves to the hearts of people such that they will be willing to listen to the truth that we want to share with them. We can expect there will be some skepticism on the part of the lost. We can expect that uh, we can be uh, stationed there due to the sovereignty of the Lord, that we're not there by accident, we're here for a purpose. But the key to all of it is the service of the laborer. He says, you may not trust me, but as far as I'm concerned, Absalom, I'm here for a reason. God's put me here. And the reason He's put me here is to serve you. Whoever's on the throne, that's whose servant I will be. In other words, Hushai understood the key to getting the year of Absalom was to make himself a servant unto him. So oftentimes, this is part of the reason we are losing ground in our modern culture. Uh, we want to beat people into submission like some kind of political interest group instead of seeking an open door to their heart and life through being a servant unto them. 
I'm not saying any of us should be a doormat to anyone. I'm not suggesting that we have a responsibility to impoverish ourselves or or to treat ourselves as as second class in light of anyone. But I am saying if we want people to listen to us, then we're going to have to show them the love and compassion of Christ by making ourselves a servant unto them. You know, they might listen to you if they could see the love of God in you. But if they can't see it in you, they ain't going to listen to you. I mean, you've heard this before, but I'll just echo it in your mind just so it rings there for a moment that they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. I see Hushai was convincing. And then turn over to chapter 17 and we'll be done this morning. This really is sort of the meat of his story. It is the the, the central portion we could maybe say to it. It's where the rubber meets the road. If in chapter 15 he was commissioned, if in chapter 16 he was convincing, in chapter 17... We see him counseling. It's now come down to crunch time. There is the moment where he must stand up and offer a voice and a a word on behalf of his king. What does that look like? Well, in sort of this chapter or this portion of it could be divided in two parts. Notice first off in chapter 17, verse number 1, we are first introduced to the perilous counsel of Ahithophel. So this begins with Ahithophel speaking to Absalom. He's the wicked man. He is the propagandist. He is the enemy. He reminds us of the devil. And what does he say to Absalom? It says, Moreover, Ahithophel said unto Absalom, verse 1, Let me now choose out 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue after David this night. And I will come upon him while he is weary and weak-handed, and will make him afraid. And all the people that are with him shall flee, and I will smite the king only. And I will bring back all the people unto thee. The man whom thou seekest is as if all returned. So all the people shall be in peace. We could summarize his counsel in saying this. He says, let me gather up a posse of people, let me gather up an army, and let me, you sit back here, Absalom, don't worry about it. I will lead an army. I will find David. He's weak. He's on the run. Uh, he's a coward. I'll find him and I'll kill him. And if I kill him, you don't have to worry about anybody else. They'll all fall in line as soon as I gain the victory over David. Now, much of what Ahithophel says is rooted in his personal vendetta. What he says is completely false. And he was counselor enough to know that what he was saying was false. But he was so blinded by bitterness and rage that he was willing to offer false and foolish counsel to Absalom because of his hatred of the rightful king. By the way, you know that's how the devil is. The devil says what he says, not because he cares about you, but because he hates God so much. And so what was the what was the problem? What was so perilous about this? Well, number one, it left Absalom without truth. The things that Ahithophel says about David are not true. He gave a false representation of who David is. Hushai will correct that here in a moment. But can I say this? The thing that the devil's scared of more than anything is that sinners will learn who Jesus really is. Uh, we worry so much about being master theologians and witnessing to people having an answer to every question. But I'll tell you what makes the real difference. If you can learn how to clearly communicate who Jesus, the blessed darling Son of God is, if you can simply tell sinners He's God in the flesh, perfect, virgin-born, sinless, powerful, victorious over death, and He loves you and He cares about you, and everything else will follow in course. There'll come a day you can sit around at some fellowship meeting and argue about whether Adam had a belly button. But your focus ought to be when you're sharing the gospel, portraying clearly who Jesus is. I see that it left him without truth. Number two, it left him waiting. He says in verse number three, I will bring back all the people unto thee. I will bring it back. In other words, here's what Hithophel said. Absalom, 
Don't trouble yourself. Just sit right where you're at and I will take care of everything. But don't you go chasing after David yourself. You just stay right here. You know the problem with the devil's propaganda is it encourages sinners to just keep living in their sin. To not change their life and, and pursue after the Lord. It tells to the sinner, well, you're probably alright the way that you are. You just keep living that way. You know, uh, the greatest, uh, one of the greatest truths, most profound truths that was ever communicated to me is this. Uh, you know, uh, when the Bible says, what does a man have to do to be born again? What does he have to do to go to heaven? The Bible's clear in its answer. Place your faith in Jesus Christ. Now let me ask you the opposite question. What does a man have to do to die and go to hell? Absolutely nothing. You don't have to be a bad person to die and go to hell. You're born a sinner. Uh, you don't have to go out and commit some grave and scarlet crime to die and go to hell. You just have to keep doing what you've been doing and you'll die in your sins and you'll go to hell. That's the problem with Ahithophel's counsel that left him waiting. But then look down in verse number 4. This is interesting. The Bible says the same pleased Absalom well and all the elders of Israel. Now, you would think that would be the end of the story, right? They'd say, all right, Ahithophel, you gather your army and go. Verse 5, then said Absalom, Call now Hushai the archite also. Let us hear likewise what he saith. When Hushai was come to Absalom, Absalom spake unto him, saying, Ahithophel hath spoken after this manner. Shall we do after his saying? If not, speak thou. You know the problem with what the devil tells a lost sinner? One, it leaves him without truth. Two, it leaves him waiting, not doing anything about his lost condition, not, not coming to the Lord. But number three, it leaves him wanting. At first it says Absalom was pleased. But then just one verse later, Absalom says... You know, that just don't have the ring of truth to it. Maybe I better call Hushai and see if I can get the real truth of the matter. You know, at the end of the day, and this is something we need to be reminded of as soul winners, as people that share the gospel, at the end of the day, at the heart of every sinner is a nagging feeling that the way they're living, that what they're doing, that how they're existing is not the answer to it all. The devil will try to convince you that he has satisfied and satiated them through the pleasures of this world, through the prosperity of this world, through the promotion of this world. But listen, the devil's a liar from the beginning, always has been. You mark her down. Every lost sinner knows when they pillow their head at night that something's not right in their heart. And Hushai was just waiting there for that moment. So we see the perilous counsel of Ahithophel, but then we see the powerful counsel of Hushai. So what did he say to him? What did he say to him that won the day that made the difference that convinced Absalom to change his mind? Look at verse number 7. Hushai said unto Absalom, The counsel that Ahithophel hath given is not good at this time. Let me say number one, he emphasized the difference. He didn't come in and say, Well, it's pretty good, pretty good what Ahithophel said, but maybe we ought to try this, maybe we ought to try that. He was clear in his distinction. He said, Ahithophel is wrong and I have the truth. You know, part of the reason we struggle in witnessing to people is we lack even the boldness to tell them that they're wrong in what they believe. We have been so conditioned by Marxist moral relativism that we feel scared to even say that what they believe is wrong. How are we ever going to point someone right if we won't first point out how they're wrong? Now, we don't do this with a spirit of haughtiness or spite or causticness, but we have to be willing to say, hey, listen, what the world tells you is not true. What, what false religion tells you is not true. What the devil is telling you is not true. There is hope only in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. I see He emphasized the difference. He didn't try to find common ground. 
He didn't try to find some way that they could agree, that they could make some kind of peace treaty on to then bridge and branch to some greater, deeper conversation. Instead, he says, very plainly, Absalom, the problem with what Ahithophel says, it sounds real good, it's just not true. We need to be willing to say to lost people, the problem with what the world's telling you, I know it sounds real good, I know everybody's agreeing with it, but the problem with it is it's simply not true. The gospel is true. The word of God is true. He emphasized the difference. Look at verse 8. The Bible says, For said Hushai, thou knowest thy father and his men, that they be mighty men. Now, I'll go ahead and summarize his counsel. He basically says, if you allow a small contingent to go out and find David, David's going to wait till they strike, and he will be laying ambush. And then he will come out with his army and annihilate and destroy that small army. And when men hear that, they will rally to David's banner. So Hushai's advice is basically this. You need to gather the full force. And you need to go yourself to battle. And you need to find David. And you need to kill him in one fell swoop. Because if you just strike at him, it's going to be your undoing. Now the premise of all this is found in a few statements here. Verse 8 Hushai said unto him, Thou knowest thy father and his men, that they be mighty men. Down in verse number 8 at the very end, he says this, Thy father is a man of war. Down in verse number 10, he says this, He also that is valiant, whose heart is as the heart of a lion, shall utterly melt. For all Israel knoweth that thy father is a mighty man, and they which be with him are valiant men. Say, preacher, what was the overall spirit and tone? Well, I would say this, Ahithophel says, David's a coward. He's a paper tiger. No reason to worry about him. You just go out and whoop him and he'll run off. Hushai's argument is different. He says, no, here's the reality. That king out there, he's a mighty man. He's a man of war. He's a man of victory. He is a man that will do all that it takes to gain the victory. And you better not underestimate him. I would say this. He glorified the king. Instead of downplaying the king, he magnified the king. Instead of saying, well, it ain't no big deal. And, you know, he, he's not that... That, that, that ferocious, he's not that fierce, he's not that valiant. He said, you better not underestimate your father, for he is a great warrior. Why did this ring true? Because Absalom already knew it to be true. If you want my opinion, and I assume that's why he came to church, right? Not hardly. <laughs> I, I, listen, my opinion is this. The very thing that probably nagged at Absalom the most was what Ahithophel said about his father. He knew that wasn't true. And because he knew that what he was being told about the rightful king was false, he could not get any rest over it. He comes to Hushai, and you know what? Hushai says, I'll tell you who the king is. The king's a mighty man. He's a glorious man. He's a man of war. He's a man not to be trifled with. He's a man not to be underestimated. In other words, his whole counsel centered around how glorious and powerful the rightful king was. You know, what we ought to be telling the lost sinners is that Jesus is powerful. He's glorious. He can break those chains of bondage. He can break those chains of affliction. He can change your life. Hey, not give him a little try and see if it works, but no, he is the majestic King of kings and Lord of lords. And if you'll put your faith in him, he has power enough to change your life. He glorified the king. Down in verse number 11, he says this, Therefore I counsel that all Israel be generally gathered unto thee, from Dan even to Beersheba, as the sand that is by the sea for multitude, and that thou go to battle in thine own person. He prioritized the personal nature of this conflict. He said, can't nobody go to battle for you, Absalom. You have to go to battle yourself. He says, now what you ought to do is gather everybody you can find and bring them with you. But you need to understand that there will be no peace this day unless you go to battle yourself. One of the things you ought to emphasize in sharing the gospel is that this isn't something to be subcontracted out. 
This isn't something that can be doled out to somebody else. Hey, if we're not willing to go down and meet the king ourselves, there'll be no peace this day. Now, we ought to say, you ought to gather up everybody you can and take them with you. But we need to remind people that this matter of salvation, it is a personal matter. Have you been saved? Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? You can't, you say, well, my granddaddy was a preacher. Praise the Lord for it. God don't have no grandchildren. You're either a child of God yourself or you ain't one at all. My, my, my daddy was a deacon. That might be a mark against you. I'm not sure. We'll find out when we get to heaven. But none of that matters anyway. What matters is have you personally placed your faith in Jesus Christ? He prioritized the personal nature. Verse 12, this is interesting. He says, so shall we come upon him in some place where he shall be found. And we will light upon him as the dew falleth on the ground. He certified the plan. He said, I promise you this, Absalom, if we go looking for him, we'll find him. You know, we need to encourage lost sinners to this fact. Hey, seek him while he may be found. But if you'll seek him, he may be found. He will be found. It's assured he will be found. Uh, Hushai didn't say, well, we'll go looking for him and maybe we'll stumble across him. He said, if we go looking, I promise we'll find him. We need to remind lost people, if you'll look for him, You'll find Him. He's not hiding from you. He's looking for you. If you'll just come to Him, He'll receive you. He certified the plan. He magnified the importance. Verse 13, He says, Moreover, if He be gotten into a city, then shall all Israel bring robes to that city, and we will draw it into the river until there be not one small stone found there. Here's what He said. We'll do everything we've got to do to get the king. We'll literally pull a city into the river if that's what it takes to get the king. I, I would say this. It don't cost us anything to get saved. It takes no effort on our part. It takes no, it takes no work on our part. It takes no promises on our part. But I found that when a person is truly willing to be born again, though they don't have to do anything, they're usually willing to do everything. They get to a place of desperation, in other words. We could summarize what uh, Hushai says here in this phrase, by all means, by all means. We will do whatever it takes to get the king. I would say this, that in as much as we're witnessing to people, you say, preacher, what should we be looking for? The seriousness of mind where people are willing to pursue after the Lord and to seek Him. I understand they don't have to do anything to be saved as far as effort, personal effort on their part. I understand that. You understand that. We know it's all of grace. It's not of works. But I would say this, that a person is not really ready to come to the Lord until they get in the frame of mind where they're willing to say, I'd do whatever it takes. And you know what you'll find when you're ready to do whatever it takes? you'll find out that He's already done everything that it takes. And all you've got to do is receive Him. And then I see a final thing. Look at verse 14. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. Now that's a victory. He won the day. The application that we're making today, and I understand Ahithophel, uh, that Absalom didn't get saved that day. And I understand Ahithophel wasn't actually Satan embodied. But as we're making an application today, to sharing the gospel, that would be the moment we would say that someone got saved. The victory was won. They changed their mind. They came to the king. That's that moment. How did that take place? It says, For the Lord had appointed to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel to the intent that the Lord might bring evil upon Absalom. In other words, why did the counsel work that day? It worked because God was in it. It worked because God was working. Let me be abundantly clear here. I'm not suggesting that God appoints these to be saved and doesn't appoint those. The Bible's uh, abundantly clear that God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He tasted death for every man. I believe this, uh, for a person, uh, anybody that's willing to get saved can be saved. Anybody that's willing to get saved can be saved. But I would say this, that willingness of mine doesn't exist 
except in a place where God's working in a person's heart. Hey, listen, this is the reason that Christ said, no man can come unto me except my Father draw him. He was not saying that there will be people that want to get to me and can't get to me. He was saying this, there won't be anybody that wants to get to me except God's already working on them and dealing with them in their heart and mind. This is a great peace of mind and should be to people that struggle with assurance of their salvation. I've had people ask me, well, preacher, maybe God's just given up on me. Maybe I've crossed some threshold. Maybe I've committed some unpardonable sin and God's not dealing with me anymore. And I always remind them of this. If God wasn't dealing with you, you wouldn't care. wouldn't matter to you. wouldn't be important to you. You wouldn't give thought to it. The very fact that you're troubled tells me that God is dealing with you. And I would say that the in your life and mine, if we want to effectively share the gospel, here's what he did. He relied on the Lord. At the end of the day, all the counsel he could give would not have changed Absalom's mind had God not been working in Absalom's heart. God had a purpose. God had a plan. And in our life, if we're going to influence people for Christ, if we're going to win people to Christ, I understand we don't save them. I understand we don't win them. I understand God does all of that. But that's the very point. If we're going to be a a, a counselor for God, an ambassador for God, a witness for God, then the only way we'll do it effectively is in concert with the work of the Holy Spirit in people's lives. This is why it's vital that you listen to the Holy Spirit and not just them. I'm going to say that again. This is why it's vital that you listen to the Holy Spirit in witnessing and not just them listen to the Holy Spirit. It's important that you listen to it. Why, preacher? Is it that they can't get saved if I'm not listening to the Holy Spirit? No, it's kind of like what we talked about a second ago about assurance of their salvation. You won't know who to witness to if you ain't listening to the Holy Spirit. Hey, there's places God's been watering. There's places that God's been fertilizing. There's places that God's been tilling the ground. And listen, yeah, it's true. You could walk out in the middle of somewhere and just throw seed wherever it may land. But wouldn't it be a lot more effective to go to the soil that God has already prepared and be used of God to plant, to work, to labor, so that God might give the increase. I'd say this, that the means through which we as Bible-believing Christians influence this world, it's not through the means of the sword. It's not through the means of the, the bullet box. Hey, it's not through the means of the ballot box. But rather, it's through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hey, there, there ain't nobody so messed up that God can't straighten them out if He saves them. That politician you or I hate the most, whoever it might be, I don't have nobody in mind. You might. I don't know. But whoever it is, they could be saved by the grace of God, changed. Uh, that, that neighbor that you've got that gives you up the road, that co-worker that blasphemes God in your ears every time they're around, there's not a one of them that God couldn't change and transform by the grace of God. And that's how we conquer. That's how we reach people. That's how we change this world. It's not through signatures and petitions. It's not through politicians and, and, and protests but rather it's through the preaching and proclaiming of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I would say this, there's a work for us to do if we're willing to do it. Let's bow our heads together as a musician comes to play. Here's what every one of us should be committing in our hearts. God may have dealt with you about more than this this morning, and I want you to obey Him, whatever He's dealt with you about. But every one of us should be committing that wherever God has stationed us, wherever He's placed us, whatever position He's put us in, that it's a mission field. That God has put us there to share the gospel, to reach people with the truth of Calvary, and to see their lives changed by the grace of God. That we're not there by accident or incident or even our own intentional planning, but there by the providence of God for the purpose of God to do the work of God, to conquer through counsel, to change hearts through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We should be purposing that we're going to live our life on those terms and in that way. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus.